It says, and after he had said these things, Luke 19, 28, he was going on ahead, ascending to Jerusalem. Whenever you go to Jerusalem, you actually ascend to the city. The city is up on a hill. And after he had said these things, Jesus had just shared a parable. It's the parable of the Minyas, which is really very closely related to the parable of the talents. Jesus, if I can summarize, told a story of how uh, a master had given a certain amount to each one of his servants, and he said, I'm going on a long journey, and I'm coming back, and just to summarize, I want you to invest wisely. And then when he returns, when the master returns, he's going to call his servants to account. Jesus was summing up, he was concluding his earthly ministry, and he was going to go away for longer than all the disciples could really imagine. He was going to be gone. It's been now almost 2,000 years. I don't think Paul or John or Peter really could have fathomed that it would be that long and that the circle of the church would be so wide. But what they did in those early years has really radiated out to the ends of the earth, and it's been amazing, and that's why we are in the kingdom right now. And Jesus said, I'm going to go on a long journey, and I want you to invest what I give you. And each one of you have different gifts. And here's the question, and this came up in our prayer meeting this morning. Are you a bench warmer, or are you in the game? I'm not talking about you needing to use other people's gifts to be engaged. I'm talking about your gifts. I'm talking about whether or not you are just satisfied to be fed, or if you want to feed. That's a question that you need to ask yourself. Are you satisfied just to continue to receive, receive, and receive? J. Vernon McGee said, you know what? Christians who continue to receive and don't give out, they become fat, flabby Christians. And he said it with his southern drawl. That's not what we want. We want to be active and engaged in our gifts. Jesus was ascending to Jerusalem. He had talked about investment And on he went. He was on God's timetable. You guys know that this is the beginning of Passover week. And what this day was called to the Jews, based upon Exodus 12, was lamb selection day. Here's what they would do. They would pick a lamb for their family at the beginning of this week. The lamb had to be without spot and without blemish. And they would keep the lamb during the week. And then at the end of the week, on that Friday, what we call Good Friday, at twilight, they would kill the lamb. The lamb would be uh, the sacrifice for that family. It was called the Passover lamb. In 2 Corinthians 5, 7, Jesus is called our Passover lamb. Jesus died at twilight on Good Friday, fulfilling all of that imagery. Now, one of the things that you had to do with the lamb that you had selected was it had to be inspected by the religious leadership. That whole week as Jesus is in the temple, the religious leadership is asking him question after question, inspecting him. He proved himself to be without spot and without blemish. In fact, at the end of the week, it says they stopped asking him questions. You know why? Because he was not giving convenient answers. Every time they asked him a question, they tried to trap him. He would trap them in their own trap. He would turn it back on them, and finally they stopped asking questions. He was the lamb inspected, and then on Friday he's the lamb rejected. He came to his own, but his own would not receive him. But to as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. 
He was on God's timetable. And this is what he was doing. John 7, 6, he said, my time is not yet at hand, but your time is always opportune. opportune. Jesus now, who had largely rejected any kind of public lauding of him, they would try to make him a king and he would move away from that uh, public uh, lauding of him. They would want to go tell and he would say, don't tell anybody what happened. Don't tell anybody about this miracle. He was on God the Father's timetable. And now his time had come. He had set his face like flint towards Jerusalem. That's Luke 9:51, And on he was going. And it came about 1929 of Luke that when he approached Bethpage and Bethany near the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples. Now I'm gonna show you the first picture. This is a, a view of the Mount of Olives looking east. So basically you'd be in the Temple Mount area. You can see a couple of churches there. There's a church up at the top. It's a uh, Eastern Orthodox or a Greek Orthodox church. And then there's a church down below. If you look to my left right here, this is the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, we had a chance as a group to uh, do a little message right in this area. It's very busy. There's a lot of people that you would say are on pilgrimage to the Holy Land. And there I got to, to preach a message on the Garden of Gethsemane and preach it to many people because there were a bunch of people passing by. And we talked about Jesus' prayer right down here in the Garden of Gethsemane, just to the left of the church at the bottom. Everywhere you go in Israel, where they believe is a major site of a miracle or a sermon that Jesus preached, a church is built on it. And uh, it's one of the things that may surprise you when you go to Israel. And each of the churches are run by different denominations. Some of them are Greek Orthodox. Some of them are Roman Catholic. Some of them have nuns overseeing them. Some of them have priests. Uh, and so you go into these churches, and one of the beautiful things that happen in the church, um, in one of the churches, is that, actually this happened a couple different times, is all of a sudden people from all over the world, Christians who are on pilgrimage in Israel, begin to sing together. And these churches have amazing acoustics. It actually sounds, it makes bad singers sound pretty good. <laughs> and as we began to sing in certain locations, you've just felt like you didn't want to leave. Uh, just just uh, someone would break out in a song and it was just beautiful. It just, it just showed you the heart of God's people all over the world longing to be in these places where Jesus was. And Jesus said in verse 30, go into the village opposite you in which, in which as you enter you will find a colt tied on which no one yet has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. This was a colt specially set apart for a divine purpose. Can you imagine if the Lord said, I want you to go take your neighbor's Dodge Colt for my purposes. Can you imagine going over there? I need your keys. They would say to you, why? This is my baby. This is my pride and joy. If you said to them, the Lord has need of it, this would be a true test of how godly your neighbor actually is. But what if someone asked that of you? The Lord has need of this. Let me take it. Would you give it? Would you say, sure, if the Lord has need of this, whatever he has need of, I want to give. If anyone asks you, 31, why are you untying it? And certainly you would think someone would. Thus you shall speak, the Lord has need of it. And those who were sent went away, found it just as he had told them, just as Jesus had said. And as they were untying the colt, its owners, plural, which probably means they were poor, multiple owners for one 
uh, colt, said to them, Why are you untying the colt? Why are you taking my bicycle right now? Why are you jumping on my Harley right now? Modern expressions. And they said, The Lord has need of it. Would that be enough for you? Do you know that the Lord has need of some things in your life? Oh, he doesn't really need anything, but he wants to use you. He wants to set you apart to be used for divine purposes. Can you imagine that colt, whoever that little colt was? What a, what a ride to have the Messiah that you could carry into Jerusalem. Mark's gospel says that the owners asked, what are you doing untying the colt? And they said, Jesus, the master, has need of it. And they gave them permission, then take it. You know, our lives to be, are to be lived with open hands. In the New Testament, you know, the mandate is not necessarily a tithe because a tithe for Israel was 23 and a third percent. A tithe is a good place to start, giving 10%. But look, a tithe is just one aspect of your life. What you really want to do is say, Lord, my hands are open. You put in and take out of my hands as you would will. My whole life is yours. Not just 10% of my time. Not just 10% of my treasure. Not just 10% of my talent. Everything that I have is yours. If that's your mindset, then you'll start, I think, living out the biblical mandate. And you'll be amazed at what God will do with your life if you don't hold back. If you just say, all that I am is yours, Lord. It's a very freeing thing because he'll bless you more than you could imagine. You know, we get nervous. We want to hold things back from the Lord. I don't want to let that go. That's my Colt. It's my Dodge. That's my Chevy. But you know what? The Lord wants to do amazing things and he just wants to take your feet where he wants them to go. If you just remain open and just say, Lord, this, this is your day. Do what you want with my life. In the book of John, if you turn one book to your right, we get a little bit more insight, John 12, 15, of a scripture that was being fulfilled. It says, Jesus, finding the young donkey, 12, 14 of John, sat on it. As it is written, this is John 12, 15, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Zion's another name for the city of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming seated on a donkey's colt. If you want to write in your margin, if you've never written this before, this is from Zechariah 9.9, written at least 500 years before Jesus made this ride. This is what we call prophecy. And here's what the prophecy says. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation. He is humble Mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Anybody who knew Zechariah 9.9 knew that the Messiah was coming on a colt. He would present himself to the nation as the king of the nation. And by the way, a colt was an animal used for purposes of kings. Solomon rode on a colt when he was presented to the nation. Later on, at Jesus' second coming, Zechariah also comments that Jesus and the Mount of Olives are going to have a part to play. But this time, this second coming, Jesus is not coming on a colt. He's coming on a horse, 
literal or figurative, I'll leave it up to you, but it does say a white horse. It is Revelation 19. His name is the word of God. His robe is dipped in blood and he comes to make war. And when he sets his feet on that Mount of Olives, the Mount of Olives is going to split in two. He's coming again. And there are prophecies in the book of Zechariah in chapter 9 and in chapter 14 that tell us that the day of the Lord is coming. And when it comes, this one who wrote in a cult the first time regarding salvation will come a second time, not in, not in regarding purchasing our salvation, that's done, but he's coming to rescue his people and to judge the world. And the only question on that day is going to be, do you know him? Are you going to be, when he comes, if we happen to be here, are you going to be saying, oh, yeah, or uh-oh? Those are going to be really the only two responses. And so Jesus is coming again. I would encourage you, and we may do it at the end of this message, to take a peek at Zechariah 14 this week. He rides on a beast of burden to carry the burden and the grief and the sorrow that our sins have caused. And so Luke continues in 1935. They took the colt, the owners released it, and they brought it to Jesus. Luke 1935. They threw their garments on the colt, probably just for padding, and they put Jesus on it. Some of our folks on our trip to Israel decided to do a camel ride. Our guide's name is Jarir. Jarir, last time we were in Israel, we had an Israeli guide who was not a Christian. This time we had a Palestinian tour guide who is a believer. He's an Arab, and he's part of what's called a Malachite church. And he said in his denomination, in his church, there's only about five families that make it to church every Sunday. He said there's about 130 families on the church roster, but the rest of them only come once a year. And I said, you know what? People are the same all over the world. <laughs> he said, now they do come for the weddings in the church, but not for the actual wedding ceremony. They come for the party afterwards. That's Jareer's congregation. So he said, look, um, those of you who want to ride a camel, I just got news for you. Uh, do any of you have, you might have purchased travel insurance. The question is, do you have camel insurance? So... He said, because you never know what this thing may do. It could buck you off. So some of our brave people got on the camel and whoo, up they went with a candle, camel. And uh, one of our ladies was on the camel and they, she rode it across the street. Of course, the, the guy was pulling it along. And I think the camel bit somebody's toupee off across the street. It was a, <laughs> something like that anyway. <laughs> no, he didn't spit at anybody. And so as he was going, 36, they were spreading their garments in the road. Now they put garments on the colt. Now the people began to spread their garments, part of their outer cloaks on the road. What does this mean? Well, I think they were saying something like this. Our clothes represent us. So we're going to spread our garments in the road as if to say, everything that we are, you own. We are under you. You are over us. You are Messiah, King, and Lord. Would you put your best jacket in the road and let him ride over it? Your most coveted possessions, your best suit? It's kind of what they did. They were saying, you are Lord over us. We bow to you. 
But we know how fickle people can be because it wouldn't be long till people in the city were saying, crucify him. And I don't know how the crowds divided during that week. I don't know how many who said Hosanna then said crucify him. It may have been a lot of them. It may have been a few. And so now he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives. Lisa, if you go to the next one. As you uh, are up on the Mount of Olives and you get a look, you're, this is, we're at the top of the Mount of Olives. Now we're looking west. And you can see the Temple Mount. And one of the things that you see on the Temple Mount today is the Dome of the Rock. Rock Mosque. It's the, the one with the golden dome. And also, uh, right near it is something called the Al-Aqsa Mosque. In Islam, they believe that that's where Muhammad rode the horse up to heaven. So it's a very holy place for them. In 1967, the Jews gave control of the Temple Mount, at least a certain amount of control, to the Arabs. And so there's two Muslim shrines on the Temple Mount. And when you first go to Israel, it's a little bit surprising how much there is of Islam there. In fact, when you're in Jerusalem and you get to go a bunch of different places when you're there, you'll begin to hear the Muslim prayers from prayer towers. And uh, for many people, uh, especially the first time hearing it, it's a bit of an eerie feeling. And one of the things that shocks you a little bit is to realize that this is going on right in the heart of the city the capital, if you will, of Israel. What's going on? Why are things this way? Why is there such a diversity there? Why are there two Muslim shrines on the place that the Jews believe is Solomon's Temple Mount? I'll tell you why. And if you hear what I'm about to say right now, I think this will go a long way to understanding your Bible. The reason that it is the way it is now is one word. Here's the word. Unbelief. Israel's whole history of what they have been through as a people, not all of it, but a good portion of it, is simply the result of not believing God. Do you know that without faith, it is what? It's impossible to please God. The consequences of unbelief can be seen through the history of Israel. By the way, Israel, the name, and uh, there's been a lot of debate. Some say it means uh, governed by God, but I believe that uh, a commentator uh, that I was reading recently, and I'm trying to recall his name right now, but I think he's got it right. Israel probably means God prevails. That's probably the best way to define Israel, God prevails. But God, when he prevails, also leaves us with the consequences of our decisions. If we won't believe him, then we'll get the rubble that goes with it. And when you go to the Holy Land, one thing that surprises you is what's happening in the city. Uh, there's still today, largely, a group of people in Israel who do not believe in God. They don't believe. They are very patriotic. They are very committed to the ongoing health of their nation. They are very zealous people, very productive people, technology, fruits and vegetables. This land is blossoming again, but they are largely doing it without faith in God. 
They are largely secular. There are groups of Orthodox that you'll see. And when you go to the Western Wall and you see the people doing the prayers and you see the curls and you see the black clothing, they are Orthodox. They have a faith in God. But you wonder if Isaiah's words are correct. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And that's not just Jewish people at the Western Wailing Wall. That's any person who goes through the religious motions, whether it's in Israel or in Corona, and doesn't know God. And so Jesus begins this descent. Lisa, go to the next one, if you would. And so uh, this is a road that you can walk today, the triumphal entry road, and this is something that we did. We actually walked down the descent. Go to the next one. Lisa, if you would. Here's a group of people making their way. You can see the Dome of the Rock in the distance. And so this is roughly what they would say Jesus rode down on the colt uh, into the city. He was on the Mount of Olives going towards the Temple Mount. You can see how you'll go down the descent and then you go back up to the city because the city of Jerusalem is elevated. So you, you descend down you cross the Kidron Valley, which is down there by the road, and then you go back up to the city. And so this is where Jesus is. So it's, it's, when you're there, it's kind of intriguing. You kind of almost have to pinch yourself a few times and go, wow, I'm, I'm actually here where this stuff was happening. I can kind of, I can see a lay of the land. I can see what was going on. And so he descends the Mount of Olives, 37. The whole multitude of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen. They had just seen Lazarus raised from the dead. That's recorded in John uh, 11 and uh, John 12 as well. And so the people, this is John 12, 13, began to uh, take branches of palm trees and they went out to meet him and they cried, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. They began to cut palms. We have palms up here now. They had palm branches that were used during the Feast of Tabernacles, for example. They represented joy. It would almost be for the Jew like waving an American flag as if you were at a parade. That's what the palm branch represented. And they were probably waving the branches and doing something celebratory. This was the Passover, but they were lauding him. They were calling him the King of Israel. Can you imagine? They were calling him the Messiah. They were crediting Psalm 118, which is a messianic psalm. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And when they said Hosanna, that is a Hebrew word or Aramaic word that means save us now. Save us. What did they want salvation for? Well, down in the city on the Temple Mount was a Roman fortress called the Fortress of Antonia. They were not free. They were under Roman domination. And it's been pointed out by scholars that maybe the waving of the palms and the cry of Hosanna was more about the immediate desire to be delivered from Rome. And Rome was ruling with an iron fist in many areas. And the people did not feel free. There were many people who were revolting against Rome. They were insurrectionists. And there were many insurrections that had to be put down by the Roman guard. And so there's Jesus. They're singing to him. 38, they're saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven 
glory in the highest. They're attributing Psalm 118, verses 21 through 26. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Save us, save us now. You would think, well, this is a a great thing that they're attributing this to Jesus. And some of the Pharisees, 39, in the multitude said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Tell them not to say that to you. And Jesus answered, I tell you, If these become silent, the stones will cry out. A lot of our groups said, and I I got this as well, I told people I was going to Israel, and somebody said, bring a rock back for me. I just want a rock. So some people had rocks in their pockets. They gained 10 pounds as they went through the the thing, you know. (laughs) Other people, we some of us picked up seashells by the Sea of Galilee. I've got a little collection of those going. Why do people want a rock from Israel? Well, some people want it because they want to put it on their desk and say, hey, this is a rock from Israel. This is one of the rocks that didn't cry out, but would have. I picked one up when I was in the middle of Israel, and I was thinking some of these thoughts, you know, and it, all of a sudden I heard, put me down, and I'm Apparently, rocks can talk. I don't know. And I've got to say it. If the rest of the people would have been quiet, I think the rocks would have cried out, and it would have been the first rock concert in all of history. Yeah. I do believe the rocks would have been, Hosanna, Hosanna. Just my thoughts. Now, some people believe that the stones that Jesus was referring to may have been the stones of the temple. When you go there, it's, it's the land of rocks and stones, uh, especially in the south. When you go up to the northern area, it's very beautiful. But the stones of the temple were, some of them, like railroad boxcars. Did Jesus may, maybe mean the stones of the temple would cry out? I don't know. But Jesus said, I'm not going to quiet them. Because if they were quiet, the whole creation would cry out, if you will. And with all this going on, Lisa, if you can move on with the pictures. Um, Jesus coming down this place called the Triumphal Entry uh, Street. Keep going, Lisa. Um, Here's one thing that you do pass as you're going down. One more is you pass a cemetery. Uh, All of these people have asked, and they pay tremendous uh, price, and this is a Jewish cemetery, and they want to be buried here because they know Zechariah 14 says that the Messiah, when he returns, will what? Plant his feet where? On the Mount of Olives. So they figure, if I get buried here, when the resurrection comes, I'll be the first to what? See the Messiah. Somebody asked, why are the little rocks on the graves there? Uh, the grain, by the way, those are representative. The people are buried below. Uh, every time someone goes there and remembers a loved one or prays, they put a rock on there. And so as you go down, this is something that you pass. Keep going, Lisa. You can see the, the Temple Mount is still in the distance, and you're coming down the road. Go one more. And then this is where Jesus would have made his triumphal entry. You can see this is a photo kind of depicting what it would have looked like, people holding palms, 
He's on the colt. He's making his way into Jerusalem. People are singing Hosanna songs to him. They are lauding him as the Messiah. You'd have to think, wow, Jesus, all is well. This is what you've been trying to show people by your miracles and your sermons. No one ever spoke like you. No one ever did what you did. This has to be great. The people finally get it. They're singing Psalm 118. They're crying, Hosanna, save us, Lord. This has to be really good, right? Wrong. Because the next verse says, and when he approached and he saw the city, he cried. He wept over the city. Do you know the word uh, weep here and in the last week of Jesus' life, this is the only two records we have of him crying. At Lazarus' tomb, he wept, but that's more of like a tear coming down uh, without a lot of wailing. This word in Greek for wept means to wail aloud. It's a word used for how someone would mourn and lament over someone who just died. That's the Greek word for he wept. He paused somewhere along this descent and began to wail. Have you ever pictured Jesus that way? Wailing, mourning over the city. What would make him do that? I mean, we would think from everything that we could see, if we're one of the disciples here and we realized who he is and Peter said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God, and we hear everybody else doing it, we have to be thinking, this is awesome, this is, this is correct, this is right. But Jesus didn't see the world like we do. We look at the external. God looks where? The heart. What did he see? What made him cry. I want to know what makes God cry because I want to have his heart. You know, if you're a man here, it's okay if you cry. You can ask Paul. <laughs> Doesn't mean you're not a man. The ultimate man wept. What made him cry? Well, here's what he says. If you, 42, had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace. And I imagine he was saying this through his tears and his wailing. If you had known the day, even you, the things that make for shalom, peace with God, but now... They've been hidden from your eyes. You don't get it. You're singing these songs. You're lauding me as the Messiah. You're crying, Hosanna. But what you want is not what God wants. Because you want to be rescued from Rome. And I'm coming to rescue you from the biggest enemy that you don't realize you have. Do you know there's a lot of people walking the planet today. They don't understand what their biggest enemy is. Some people think their biggest enemy is time or their own weaknesses. But your biggest enemy is sin and death. And you have an enemy, his name is Satan, and he would love for you to be blind to the things of God. That's what he does. He blinds the minds of the unbelieving, 2 Corinthians 4, 4, 
so that they will not believe in the glorious light of the gospel. He's in the blinding business. And by the way, he blinds a lot of people, get this, with religion. Religion, without the Spirit, without God, blinds many eyes. There are many religious people all over the world. In fact, in the ancient world, there were very few atheists. Everybody had a belief system. The question wasn't, wasn't if you believed in something. The question was whether or not your belief is correct. Today in America, people think that the acid test of faith is sincerity. I have to tell you, as much as I can appreciate what people are saying, you can be sincere, but be sincerely wrong. Sincerity is not the acid test, and it will not determine whether you're going to be safe on that day of judgment. Here's what will matter, whether or not you have the true Christ and his work credited to your account by faith. That's it. And he looked at the nation he looked at a people who had a prophecy in Daniel 9 that, deter that even gave to the day when the Messiah would ride in and they didn't understand. The religious leaders said, please tell your disciples to be quiet. And Jesus said, no, I'm not gonna tell them. You don't understand, but I'll tell you what, if they're quiet, the rocks will cry out. You should have known. The irony here is Jerusalem probably means the city of peace. And it's a city that's none, known very little peace over the years. Think about the history of the city. Think about how many times it's been devastated, destroyed. The city of peace has known very little peace. If you had known the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. If you had known your time of visitation, do you know each of you, you may not realize this, there's a there's a great line in the movie called The Field of Dreams. And uh, Ray is trying to convince the old doctor, I'm trying to remember his name. He, he's saying, look, you, you, you could have played pro baseball. You had, your dreams were this close. And he said, you know, sometimes in life, we pass by the most important times of our life and brush them by like a stranger in the crowd and we don't even realize. They're the most significant moments of our lives. I've looked out at people just like you at memorial services and, and poignant moments and I've known that people have been right on the edge of faith, right on the edge of committing their lives to Christ, right on the edge of giving their future, but they've listened to another voice and they've gone in another direction. And Jesus is now going to give a prophecy. It's one that's often overlooked, but Jesus prophesied the fall of Jerusalem about 40 years before it happened. In detail, he says, For the days, 43, shall come upon you when your enemies will throw up a bank before you, surround you, hem you in on every side, and will level you to the ground, uh, and your children within you. They will not leave in you one stone Upon another, here's why. Because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. God, the Son, visited you. The, things that, the thing that prophets long to see, the thing that Old Testament priests and writers long to see is here. One greater than the temple is here. One greater than Solomon is here. But... 
the nation wouldn't believe. And 40 years later, give or take, in AD 70, Josephus says the soldiers out of the wrath, the Roman soldiers under Titus Vespasian, and hatred they bore the Jews, nailed those they caught one after one way, one after the other, to the crosses by way of jest. When their multitude was so great that room was wanting for the crosses and crosses wanting for the bodies. If I can summarize Josephus' ancient language, when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem in AD 70, just about a generation after Jesus made this ride, they had so many people nailed on crosses that they couldn't find any more crosses or any more people to put on crosses. And since Jesus is God, here's what I think what made him cry. Unbelief of the city, they didn't recognize at the time of their visitation. I think he saw into the future, as is evidenced by these verses, of what was going to happen to the city. And I think maybe he also saw his own cross. And yet, he rides. What would you have done? Would you have done a U-turn on the colt? That would have been my inclination. These people don't even understand. They don't get it. Why should I ride to my cross to save them when this is how they are? And yet, he rides. He would not give up on you. Because if he doesn't go to that cross, I'm dead in my sins. The atonement price for my salvation would not be paid, but he goes. And he enters the temple, 45, and one of the first things he does is he begins to cast out those who were selling. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a robber's den. We know at the Passover, there are all kinds of people there and they were purchasing sacrificial animals and the priests were ripping people off and they had turned the court of the Gentiles and basically into a marketplace, money changers, selling doves, all of that. And Jesus came into the place and you know what he did? He started turning over the tables. He said, don't do this in this place. Jesus was a man. Can you imagine? There were times in when the disciples would pull Jesus aside and they would say, Master, do you know what you just preached offended the religious leaders? Do, do you know? They're mad. And Jesus was like, oh. He was like, they're blind. They're blind guides leading the blind. And if a blind man leads another blind man, they'll fall into a pit. Leave them alone. And you're like, Jesus, really? Don't you have the lamb on your shoulders and you're nice to everybody? Apparently not. And so he was teaching, notice, the priority of teaching in Jesus' ministry, you'll see it time and again. He was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests and the scribes and the leading men among the people were trying to what? They wanted to destroy him, even though they had seen all these miracles. And they could not find anything that they might do, for all the people were hanging upon his words. They said, man, speak some more, Lord. Never did a man speak like he speaks. Every time he preached a message, he, he was amazing. He was a teacher. 
but he is God in human flesh. Do you hang upon his every word? Are you hungry for your Bible? When you wake up in the morning, do you say, man, I want to start my day with God's word. I want my whole life to be based upon this book because this book is God's truth. I want to walk in the spirit. I want to live my life today for the glory of God. However many hours, however many days I have left, I want to win people to Christ. I want to use my gifts. I want to redeem my time. You know, your life matters. It matters for time and for eternity. And the decisions you make, well, they mean a lot. Father, as we, uh, we ponder some deep things together, I pray right now that you would have our attention. I pray that perhaps the greatest time in a Sunday morning service is not during a message, it's not even necessarily during the worship. At least for us, probably the most important time is right now. Because we get to decide what we're gonna do with what we just heard. And thank you that you give us free will. You nudge us, you prod us, you remind us, you, you'll show us in different ways, topics that come up that you know what we've been up to, you know what we need, you know what we need to hear, you know when we need a word of encouragement, you know when we need an exhortation. You are so faithful to the small details of our lives. I was thinking back to Frank Sontag's testimony how in a parking lot at Farmer Boys, he cried out. He just tried to seek you and you spoke to him. You can speak to anyone, anywhere. But I think especially after the word of God is preached, there's an opportunity to not just merely be a hearer of the word, but a doer. And thank you that you give us the privilege to respond in that way. We can often say, after we hear a message on the radio or something like that, man, that was a good message. But the question is more, what are we gonna do with it? And the question this morning is, what should we do with this message? And the answer, I think, is obvious. To be at peace with you, to have our hearts open to you, and to be active in your service, Lord. And thank you that there is a congregation here that's hungry, passionate. They want to be used. And there's so many wonderful servants of Jesus that are here in this room. May you bless them. I'm gonna ask you to keep your heart and head bowed and ask you, do you know Jesus? And maybe you've wandered into this place and it's been a while. Maybe you have been, maybe you slid back. Maybe you've never really understood who Jesus is or the urgency of the call on your life. Right now, would you just open your heart something like this? Don't wait another moment. Jesus prayed if it's you, come into my life. Thank you that you made that ride into Jerusalem. Thank you that you went to that cross and you didn't turn back. Thank you that while I was yet your enemy, you loved me. Thank you that you demonstrated that love on the cross and through your resurrection.
I believe in you. I repent of my sin. Pray it if it's you. Change me from the inside out. Make me the man that you want me to be, the woman that you want me to be, the spouse that you want me to be. Lord, as people are crying out, I just pray that you would be doing a work, a fresh work in hearts. I pray that you'd be encouraging. I pray you'd bring healing and strength and passion and boldness. I pray that for myself. We just want to say we love you. We thank you that within the very history in which we are embedded, you entered time and space. You did what you did. We have the record. We have the land. We have the archaeology. We have the word. We have your spirit. We have so many blessings. Let us engage those blessings until you come for us or we go to be with you. In Jesus' holy name I pray.